the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing today's program, Clark Hilton Engineering. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Jordan Rayner. He's the author of Master of One. Find and focus on the work you were created to do. We'll also talk with uh, Ricky Kim. He is an American-Korean actor and producer of Heaven Quest, which is a a Pilgrim's Progress prequel, and it's uh, rolling out on DVD, VOD. I I have no idea what VOD is. I'll have to ask Clark. He knows everything. And uh, digital platforms beginning, well, today. It all started today. So uh, video on demand, Clark says in my ear while I'm talking. Thank you, Clark. He knows everything, so I ask him all of those things. Anyway, Ricky Kim will join us uh, to talk about that. We reached him by Skype earlier today, so looking forward to sharing that um, conversation with you. And if uh, if you haven't seen it, there was only a very brief window in October when it was available. I have to admit it was really well done. I was pleasantly surprised. Anyway, uh, we'll be talking with him later in the program. First, some of the headlines uh, from overnight, the Iowa Democratic Party had not reported official vote totals in the critical Iowa caucuses as of Tuesday morning, midday, until this afternoon when they reported 62 percent. We'll tell you more about that later. In a largely unexplained and unprecedented delay that's raised questions about the legitimacy of the contest and campaign officials are livid. Well, the Trump campaign, meanwhile, has openly suggested that the delay meant that the caucuses were being rigged and that the embarrassing night proved that the Democratic Party can't be trusted to run America's health care and implement sweeping new government programs. Something of an overreach there. Even if a winner were ultimately announced, the chaos and confusion have seemingly erased any hope for the major momentum boost that would normally result. Now, one um, bright note for the uh, former vice president's campaign Uh, The fact that he appears to be at this point uh, so far down the line that uh, it wasn't as big an announcement as it might have been last night. And he might just uh, have less attention focused on how poorly he performed, at least it appears at this point. So that's uh, something of a benefit for him. It didn't get the kind of coverage that it would have if those announcements were made uh, last night. Anyway, we found inconsistencies in the reporting of three sets of results. The IDP said in a statement at about 11.30 p.m. Eastern Time, in addition to the tech system being used to tabulate results, we were also using photos of results and a paper trail to validate that all results match and ensure that we have confidence and accuracy in the numbers we report. And they've reported partial numbers uh, today. This is simply a reporting issue. The app did not go down, and this is not a hack or an intrusion. The underlying data and paper trail is sound and will simply take time to further report the results, end quote. Excuse me. During a contentious conference call, the IDP uh, reportedly informed frustrated campaigns they could expect results sometime later today, about 4 o'clock p.m. local time. Excuse me. Still, the lack of results in the Iowa caucuses didn't stop the upper tier of the Democratic presidential candidates from preemptively declaring a strong finish and claiming momentum moving on to New Hampshire, which most of them have now done. Need to take a little sip of my tea. That will help. 
Meanwhile, President Trump will deliver an optimistic, inspirational, forward-looking State of the Union address on the eve of the Senate's final impeachment vote, according to the president's advisor, Kellyanne Conway, who quipped that success is the best revenge. In an exclusive phone interview uh, on Sunday, Conway previewed the president's State of the Union by touting the administration's efforts over the last year and teasing that many of his... uh, a statements will end with the word winning. The president's State of the Union address, slated for this evening, 6 o'clock our time, comes as the Senate impeachment trial is coming to an end. The Senate on Wednesday is expected to hold a final impeachment vote on whether to remove the president from office or to acquit him of the charges of abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. Trump appears certain to be acquitted. And uh, throughout the day today, senators were uh, had their only opportunity really to speak 10 minutes each Uh, their comments on what had uh, taken place during the trial. Well, Rush Limbaugh has received an outpour of love and support from well-wishers after the talk show icon stunned his 20 million member audience on Monday with the announcement he's been diagnosed with advanced lung cancer. President Trump tweeted his wishes for a speedy recovery, saying many people do not know what a great guy and fantastic political talent the great Rush Limbaugh is. There is nobody like him looking for a speedy recovery for our friend, end quote. In an appearance on Tucker Carlson tonight, author and columnist Mark Stein, who will be filling in for Limbaugh much of this week while he undergoes treatment, said he is secure and kind and generous. Everyone who has had anything to do with the Rush Limbaugh show will be rooting for him. I owe him everything, end quote. Again, uh, he is also expected to attend the State of the Union address, and the president may be announcing an award that will be extended to him. Again, we'll have to watch and see. Once again, President Donald Trump will use uh, tonight's State of the Union address to tout his record on the economy and perhaps take an early victory lap with the Senate impeachment trial expected to wrap up this week, although early reports indicate that there will be no reference to uh, the uh, impeachment in prepared remarks. Whether or not the president sticks with prepared remarks, we'll have to wait and see. And race relations have improved dramatically since Trump took office, according to PJ Media. Senate Intelligence Committee will call Ukraine whistleblower to testify, according to Lindsey Graham in the Daily Wire. And Michael Bloomberg, uh, in his ads, he uses Obama-era footage of caged migrant migrants rather to criticize Donald Trump. Apparently making that distinction has never been uh, very uh, successful whose administration it actually took place in. And Rush Limbaugh, as I mentioned, announced that he has advanced lung cancer. Climate alarmists, teenage um, teenager Greta Thunberg has been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. Apparently you don't have to actually accomplish anything these days to win that prize. Hawaii gun owners are facing a tidal wave of anti-Second Amendment bills. And Democrats who use Twitter are more ideological and less willing to compromise, according to a survey published in the National Review. On this day in history, 1783, Britain's King George III proclaims a formal cessation of hostilities in the American Revolutionary War. 1789, electors choose George Washington to be the first president of the United States. And on this day in history, 1861, delegates from six southern states that have recently seceded from the Union meet in Montgomery, Alabama to form the Confederate States of America. On this day in history, 1944, the Bronze Star Medal, honoring heroic and meritorious achievement or service, is authorized by President Franklin D. Roosevelt. 1962, a rare conjunction of the Sun, the Moon, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn 
occurs, 1962. And on this day in history, 2004, the Massachusetts High Court declares that same-sex couples are entitled to nothing less than marriage and that Vermont-style civil unions would not suffice. Also in that same year, on this very day, the social networking website Facebook has its beginnings at as Harvard student Mark Zuckerberg launches the Facebook. There was a the before Facebook. Well, the Iowa Democratic Party still has not reported official vote totals in the critical Iowa caucuses as early as uh, uh, as of early Tuesday morning. They've uh, now published a partial number and a largely unexplained and unprecedented delay that's raised questions about the legitimacy of the contest altogether. Pete Buttigieg is narrowly leading the Democratic presidential field in the caucuses, according to the initial returns that the party at last began reporting late this afternoon, following a massive delay linked to technical breakdowns. More on that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Jordan Rayner, author of Master of One, Find and Focus on the Work You Were Created to Do. Well, as mentioned, Pete Buttigieg is narrowly leading the Democratic presidential field in the Iowa caucuses, according to the initial returns that the party at last began reporting late this afternoon following a massive delay linked to technical breakdowns. But Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders is close behind the former South Bend, Indiana mayor, with 62 percent of the precincts reporting in the first batch released by the embattled state party. A Buttigieg campaign source said that the preliminary results confirmed that Buttigieg performed well in key rural counties. On Monday night, even before any official result was released, Buttigieg claimed he had emerged victorious from the caucuses. A bit premature, but apparently somewhat accurate. The returns show Buttigieg with 26.9% and Sanders with 25.1%. Keep in mind, this is 62% of precincts reporting. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren trailed with 18.3% and former Vice President Joe Biden was hovering in fourth with 15.6% just ahead of Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar. And while in Complete, the results could mark a disappointing finish for the former Vice President Biden, considering his past status as the unrivaled frontrunner. If the numbers hold, both Buttigieg and Sanders may be able to claim momentum, albeit belatedly, heading into the next crucial presidential primary contest in New Hampshire. The announcement came as Iowa Democratic Party Chairman Troy Price offered a public mea culpa for the overnight fiasco, defending the accuracy of the data in hand, saying, I apologize deeply for this. He held a press conference calling Monday night's chaos simply unacceptable, and he pledged a thorough and independent review. He said party officials hit a stumbling block on the back end of the reporting of the data, but insisted this data is accurate. He faulted a coding error, but said the party has a paper trail to back the results up. Probably should have said back up the results. You don't want to leave that up hanging. Anyway, while Buttigieg and Sanders were already touting initial results, even before the party reported them, a victory by any candidate likely will be clouded by the confusion and general campaign frustration over this whole meltdown in Iowa over the past 24 hours. In fact, several are already suggesting that um, this uh, cannot be accurate, that it was somehow rigged and so on. Several top campaigns and their supporters blasted the process and the state party with the uh, overheated recriminations essentially depriving the eventual victor of this sort of clean primetime win that would ideally accompany the first-in-the-nation contest results. From here, the field hits uh, the trail in New Hampshire ahead of uh, next week's primary election, where party leaders are already boasting of a much simpler and cleaner process. 
New Hampshire uses paper ballots and has run smoothly for 100 years. They expect a great turnout in the Democratic primary by Democrats, independents, and those who register on primary day. It is a magical week in the Granite State, according to the New Hampshire Democratic Party chairman, Ray Buckley. Now, one of the things that people were poised to look at was the level of enthusiasm. Was the number, were the numbers going to be high this time around as a backlash against the administration? Well, no, they were actually quite low. So um, we could overinterpret that and try to spin it in a number of ways, but it was uh, certainly less than was hoped for and less than expected. Anyway, the Iowa Democratic Party, meanwhile, has scrambled to explain what went wrong to fend off critics eager to challenge the status of the state at the front of the presidential nominating calendar. We have every indication that our systems were secure and there was not a cybersecurity intrusion. In preparation for the caucuses, our systems were tested by independent cybersecurity consultants, Mr. Price said in his statement. Uh, The chairman said that uh, because of mandated paper backups, we have been able to verify that the data recorded in the app and used to calculate state delegate equivalence is valid and accurate. We'll find out whether or not that is accepted as the case. Again, only 62 percent reported thus far, with Pete Buttigieg uh, holding 26.95 percent of the uh, vote, followed by Bernie Sanders with 25.9 percent. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, 18.26. Joe Biden, 15.59. Amy Klobuchar at 12. uh, Andrew Yang at uh, 1%. And uh, Tom Steyer with less than 1%. um, And uh, they had uncommitted at uh, less than 1%. Michael Bennett, zero. Michael Bloomberg, zero. He wasn't in the caucuses. John Delaney, zero. Tulsi Gabbard, zero. Uh, Deval Patrick, zero. Uh, Again, in this preliminary counting. Well, President Trump will deliver his third State of the Union address uh, tonight, about six o'clock our time. Today, um, we will have the opportunity to hear from the president uh, in view of the events that have unfolded over the last really several years. But uh, the last few days, uh, his State of the Union event is flanked by senators uh, following the closing arguments by House managers and his defense team making their case that the president should either be Um, removed from office or should be acquitted. And then senators who've given been given their first opportunity to speak to these issues uh, throughout the day today. And it started really yesterday, uh, each being given an opportunity to speak for 10 minutes in response to what they sat through for the last uh, several weeks. That will be followed tomorrow. And I believe it's supposed to be around four o'clock local time. So one o'clock our time. There will be an up or down vote in the Senate, whether or not to acquit the president or to remove him from office. So the president's State of the Union address is flanked by those two uh, events. Uh, It's not the first time, as I mentioned earlier, that this has happened. A a sitting president delivering a State of the Union address during an impeachment inquiry. Uh, That was also the case with Bill Clinton. But nonetheless, it does certainly color things. One of the, the things to look at when you're evaluating the kind of State of the Union address that you're likely to, uh, to hear is uh, what kinds of guests have the pre- has the president invited? Well, a top Border Patrol agent and the brother of a man who was killed by an undocumented immigrant on a crime spree will be among the president's uh, State of the Union guests tonight. And a nod to his tough immigration policies, Deputy Chief uh, Raul Ortiz of Del Rio, Texas, 
will sit with First Lady Melania Trump in the House Gallery for the third address by the president. In 2019, Ortiz became in charge of Border Patrol operations for 210 miles of the southern border. He'll be joined by Jody Jones of Farmersville, California, whose oldest brother, Rocky, was shot and killed in 2018 by an illegal immigrant who went on a reign of terror crime spree in uh, Tulare County. The White House says California's sanctuary state policies allowed the killer with a long criminal history and previous deportation orders to be released from jail. Jones has uh, called for tougher laws in California. State of the Union guests often uh, become part of the president's speech to highlight a policy victory or a needed change. In 2018, the president honored the grieving parents of young teens who were killed in the New York MSM, or I should say, by MS-13 gang members and called on Congress to pass his hardline immigration proposals. This year, to emphasize the killing of Iranian General Qassem Soleimani, the president has invited the wife and son of Army Staff Sergeant Christopher Hake, who was killed in 2008 by a roadside bomb in Iraq supplied by Soleimani. Gage Hake was just one year old when his father died while on patrol. President Trump is expected to tout his order to take out Soleimani earlier last month. From brave military families to hardworking local leaders, this year's guests come from many walks of life. Each one represents the very best of America and people the world over, the White House said in their statement uh, ahead of the uh, State of the Union address. The president has also invited two veterans who've benefited from Opportunity Zone provision of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 to highlight investment in lower-income neighborhoods. Paul Morrow is building a new concrete uh, plant in Montgomery, Alabama, to support new F-35 jets stationed in the region. Tony Rankins of Cincinnati got a job in an opportunity zone, which he credits with helping him turn around his life and overcome addiction. Robin and Ellie Schneider of Kansas City, Missouri, uh, will be in the gallery. Ellie was born at just 21 weeks and is now a thriving two-year-old. Ivan, let's see, Simonovis from Caracas, Venezuela, is a former police chief who was imprisoned for nearly 15 years by the Chavez and Maduro regime. He escaped in 2019. He now lives in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Stephanie and um, Jania Davis from Philadelphia. Stephanie is a single mom, wants school choice legislation to pass her state to help her fourth grade daughter get out of low performing schools. Some of those who will be in the gallery this time around. Well, new polling by Gallup reveals that President Trump, much like President Clinton, his approval rating is at an all-time high as he prepares to deliver his third State of the Union address tonight. And the Senate is expected to acquit him in his impeachment trial on Wednesday. It's not a done deal. Votes have not yet been cast, but that's the anticipated outcome. Trump's job approval rating now sits at 49 percent with a 94 percent approval rating among Republicans and a 42 percent rating among independents, both numbers being highs for Trump's presidency. The GOP itself is also seeing a significant boost. With Trump's impeachment trial nearing its end, his approval rating among Democrats has decreased from 10 percent in early January to 7 percent now. The 87-point gap between Democrats and Republicans is the greatest difference in any Gallup poll. The prior record was 86 points. Uh, That was set by the ratings of President Barack Obama during the time of the 2012 election and was matched by earlier polls during Trump's presidency. State of the Union tonight, 6 o'clock p.m. our time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Jordan Rayner. He's the author of Master of One, Find and Focus on the Work You Were Created to Do. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, imagine, if you will, how different your life would be if you spent your days doing the very thing that brings you the greatest joy. Well, most people spend their days making minimal progress in a million different directions, competent at many things, but exceptional at none of them. But what if you could shift your focus from a million options to one? Well, these are questions that are posed in the book we're going to talk about, Master of One, Find and Focus on the Work You Were Created to Do. Entrepreneur, thought leader, and best-selling author Jordan Rayner, he reveals the exponential power of pursuing a singular craft or calling. Through practical principles, inspiring stories, a gospel-centric writing, he provides the four steps, explore, choose, eliminate, and master for finding and thriving in your one thing. Whether someone is at a turning point in their career or already doing work that makes them come alive, Master of One will inspire readers to become a world-class master in their craft. He lays a foundation for a path to mastery, and he deftly exposes and refutes three of the most common and pervasive lies about work and calling. The first, you can be anything you want to be. The second, you can do everything you want to do. And the third, your happiness is the primary purpose of work. Well, Jordan Rayner is a national best-selling, a bestseller, I should say best-selling author of Called to Create. He leads a growing community of Christians seeking to more deeply connect their faith with their work. In addition to his writing, he serves as the executive chairman of the tech startup Threshold 360, where he previously served as CEO after launching a string of successful ventures. A highly sought-after speaker on the topic of faith and work, he's spoken at Harvard University, SXSW, Q Ideas, and many other events around the world. He has twice been selected as a Google fellow and served in the White House under President George W. Bush. Now, I could go on because there's much more to be said, but I think you'd like to hear from him. I will mention that he is a sixth generation Floridian. He lives in Tampa with his wife and their three daughters, and we are delighted to have you with us here today. Welcome. Georgine, I'm so glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about um, uh, what you see as the purpose of of work. Now, it's a necessity for most of us in order to survive and hopefully thrive. But what is the purpose of work? That's such a good question to start the conversation. I think too many people, even many Christians, view work as a meaningless means to an end, right? We go to work to collect a paycheck to move on to the truly meaningful things in life. And that is not at all the biblical picture of work. I think John Mark Comer, right there in Portland, mm-hmm. has written really eloquently about this, right? The Bible is the only religious text that says that God himself created, was productive, worked, if you will. Every other religion says that God's created human beings to work and serve the gods. But Christianity starts with a God who himself created. And then, Georgine, as you know, he created us in his image and called us to create and fill the earth through our work, right? So work is not meaningless. It's one of the most meaningful things that we do, because when we do it, we have an opportunity to glorify our Father. And if that's true, I would argue that we Christians ought to have the highest standards for excellence in our work. The purpose of work is the purpose of life, right? To glorify God and love our neighbors as ourselves. And I believe, as I outlined in this book, the opposite of mastery is mediocrity. Hmm. Right? And mediocrity is nothing short of a failure of love of our neighbor, and I think a misrepresentation of our Father. And so in Master of One, what we're talking about is, all right, how do we do our best work, focusing primarily on God's glory and the good of others? Hmm. There's conventional wisdom that we are to follow our passions and do whatever mm-hmm. makes us happy. In Master of One, you challenge that 
conventional career advice and uh, so-called wisdom. Respond. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I'm a millennial, right? I I grew up hearing this advice from my parents. Follow your passions, follow your dreams, do whatever makes you happy. Uh, And it turns out this is garbage uh, advice. uh, (laughs) It doesn't, it doesn't work, right? So millennials, I think we can all agree more than any other generation, we have had more opportunity to quote, do whatever makes us happy vocationally. And Gallup tells us that we are the least happy generation at work. Why aren't more people questioning why this advice is so prevalent, right? And in the book, in Master of One, I talk about why this advice is failing us. I talk about a bunch of different academic studies that show that the number one predictor of describing your work as a calling is not whether or not you're passionate about the work before you started it. It's the number of years you have spent practicing the craft, right? Passion is a side effect of mastery. We get to love what we do by getting really good at it, which, oh, by the way, Georgine, shouldn't come as a surprise to Christians, right? We are called to model our lives after the one who came not to be served, but to serve. Follow your passions focuses pretty much exclusively on what I want, what, what, what value a job can give me. And I believe a much more effective and God-honoring strategy is to follow your gifts. Focus on the work that you can do uh, exceptionally well as a means of making others happy. Uh, that seems to be the most predictable path to finding work that we will also love, and not just fall in love with, but stay in love with over a long period of time. Mm. Now, early in in a working career, it's very difficult to know what you're gifted at, what you do well, and what to focus on. Um, You give some examples uh, of uh, some of the experimentation from your own career that helped you to hone in on what is it that uh, you wanted to master and what would um, be something you could master. Can you share some of your... um, some of your <laughs> examples? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, early in my career, especially in college, I was the quintessential jack of all trades and master of none, right? And I, I should say in the front end, I have no problem being described as a jack of all trades. Uh, I think that's the inevitable byproduct of discerning your calling. I have a big problem being described as a master of none. I think as Christians, there ought to be something we can point to to say, yeah, you know what? I'm mastering that in service of neighbor. But, ju- you know, just in college, man, I experimented rapidly. I had a different internship every semester. I worked at the White House. I played piano for tips at a, at a, local, uh, at a local dive in Tallahassee. Florida. Uh, I was working part-time for a tech startup. I was selling newspapers door to door. So just tons of part-time jobs, tons of internships. Uh, and I think there's a really valuable lesson here, right? It, 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 it's, it's to place little bets, especially when you're early in your career. Try a lot of different things because when you're young, you have no idea what you're going to be good at, right? And you have no clue. And so as I argue in the book, what we should be looking for in our career before we commit to something to master vocationally is where are we going to be really gifted? What are the activities that we are drawn to that we're just naturally gifted at? Uh, and that's where to pour you know, more water uh, onto that seed that's starting to sprout up and starting to produce fruit in your career. Now, for the, for the book Master of One, you interviewed a lot of people in various types of uh, positions to see how they discerned their calling and became masters of their crafts. Now, were there uh, key questions that uh, re- that you had to repeat in order to in these interviews in order to glean from them uh, what thread they might all share in common? 
Yeah, that's such a good question. So, uh, you know, we did go out, we interviewed a lot of people, a lot of Christ followers from a lot of different lines of work. Tony Dungy, the NFL Hall of Fame coach. Uh, we talked to uh, Mr. Rogers' biographer. Uh, we talked to Sharon Watkins, who is the uh, whistleblower at Enron, who is a Christ follower. And all of these people tended to ask a few questions when discerning what their one vocational thing was. Uh, first question is, what were they passionate about? What were they naturally interested in? Uh, number two was, what gifts had God given them? Uh, and number three was, you know, where do I have the very best opportunity to glorify God and serve others? So not the right opportunity, not the perfect opportunity, but the best opportunity. And out of all of those questions, the people I talked to tended to gravitate towards the second one the most, right? So not focusing primarily on passions, but focusing on giftedness. And again, that jives really well with what we were just talking about a few minutes ago, right? Passion follows mastery. So while passions uh, can point, uh, can be really interesting signposts uh, to help us figure out what we might be gifted at, they're not the end-all be-all. I think a lot of people, you know, uh, take a job today and expect to find cosmic level happiness in that career <laughs> for a long period of time. It's just not how it happens, right? You've got to stick with something long enough to get great at it, like you've done with your radio broadcasting career, Georgine, right? Uh, in order for true, sustainable, soul-level satisfaction, I think, to sit in. Now, we're going to take a quick break, but we will most definitely continue this conversation. Again, we're talking about the book Master of One. Jordan Rayner, my guest, will be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Jordan Rayner. He's a best selling author and most recently the author of Master of One Find and Focus on the Work You Were Created to Do. Let's revisit this notion of mastery. What is the purpose of mastery? That's such a good question. So we talked a few minutes ago about. Uh, the purpose of work, mm-hmm. right? The purpose of work being to glorify God, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Uh, and if we believe that as Christians, right, then the purpose of mastery uh, is to do that well, right? So I, I wholeheartedly believe that the opposite of masterful work uh, is good, adequate, often mediocre work. Uh, and mediocrity is a failure of love of our neighbor. Nobody feels loved. Uh, when they receive a mediocre, substandard product or service, right? We should all care about doing our most masterful work as possible because that's how we love our neighbors ourselves. And, oh, by the way, uh, it's how we glorify God. You know, glorify is a word that we throw around a lot in the church, and uh, it, it can lose its meaning sometime within the church. I love how John Piper defines glorify as simply reflecting God's greatness to the world. I, I think that's a really good way yes. to think about that word. And if that's true, if we care about reflecting his greatness, uh, we got to look around creation and see how God worked, see how God created with the utmost perfection, something we can never attain. But we can at least strive for mastery. We can at least strive for excellence. And that should be the driving force in all of us that makes us ambitious to do our best work, again, for the glory of God and the good of others. Now, can you explain the difference between mastery and perfection? There are those who oh, strive for perfection, and that becomes an obsession that's never satisfied. That's such, a, that's such a good question. I talk about this in the book. I think we as Christians are called to the pursuit of mastery, to the pursuit of excellent work, not necessarily the outcome. I can find no support in Scripture for us being demanded to produce uh, or obtain mastery or excellence, and certainly not 
uh, perfection, but I think it is in the journey. I think it is in the striving of seeking to do our very best work. So mastery does not equal perfection. We as Christians uh, never attain that in any aspect of our lives, including our work. Uh, but I think the striving for excellence and our absolute best selves in every area of life is biblical, right? First Corinthians 10.31 tells us to do everything for the glory of God. And again, if we believe that that means reflecting his greatness, I believe that means a wholehearted commitment to our most exceptional selves in every aspect of our lives, including our work. Now, in the book Master of One, you point to C.S. Lewis as an example of someone whose one vocational thing was broad. Um, uh, Can you tell us about that and the difference between someone's one thing being broad or specific? Yeah, that's a terrific question. So I I think when a lot of people uh, hear master of one, they're intimidated by this concept. How in the world can I just master one thing? I know I was intimidated uh, by that early in my career when I first heard this phrase. And I talk about this in the book. You know, some people's one thing is going to be super specific. So my mother-in-law, her name is Sheila. Sheila's one thing uh, is a very specific role. She has been the director of children's choral music at Idaho Baptist Church for 33 years, right? And not surprisingly, <laughs> she's world-class at what she does. But her one thing is super specific. I think most people's one thing is very broad, like C.S. Lewis's. Uh, so I was having a conversation with Lewis's stepson, who's become a good friend of mine. His name's Douglas Gresham. And he really helped me shape my thinking on this topic. I was telling Doug, I was like, hey, your stepfather appeared to be a master of many things, right? Lewis was a great writer of fiction, a great writer of nonfiction. He was a talented radio broadcaster on the BBC. He taught at Oxford. I was like, Doug, he was a master of many things. And he corrected me. He's like, absolutely not, Jordan. Uh, Lewis was very clear that his one vocational gift was teaching, right? That was a broad one thing that he applied in multiple contexts. But according to his stepson, C.S. Lewis was very deliberate in everything he did about cultivating the art of becoming a great teacher. Hmm. That was his one thing uh, that he applied in multiple contexts. So I found that to be uh, tremendously freeing. It's still a really helpful lens to think about your career because it still eliminates a bunch of other things from your professional plate uh, when you're able to articulate that one broad Yeah, card. yeah. Well, I really appreciated that. That is clarifying. Now, in Master of One, you interviewed dozens of world-class professionals for the book, which in and of itself is fascinating. Were there <laughs> themes that came up over and over again that show how we might achieve mastery in our own careers? Yeah, so there's a whole chapter dedicated mm-hmm. to answering that question, right? Uh, we, we, you know, we had a team researching God's Word. We did interviews, studied academia, and there were basically three keys to mastery that came up over and over again. Three keys to mastery any vocation. Number one, apprenticeships, right? Uh, number two, purposeful practice. So I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are familiar with the 10,000-hour rule. It takes 10,000 hours of practice to get world-class at anything. Uh, but the, the important distinction is that that's purposeful practice. And then the third key to mastery might be the rarest in our time is just discipline over a long period of time, sticking with something long enough 
uh, to get really, really great at it and where you're not just falling in love with the vocation, uh, but getting good enough to stay in love with that vocation over a long period of time. Well, I love that purposeful practice. I loved playing the piano. I just didn't like to practice. <laughs> I didn't yeah. want to put in the time to actually learn to play it well. I just wanted to plank around and then somehow all of, you know, all of a sudden be able to play some sort of sonata. It never worked out that way. That's what I'm struggling with with my <laughs> five and a half year old right now. So I, I feel your pain, Georgie. <laughs> Um, Can you speak to the importance of the lost art of apprenticeship, which used to inform many as to what their one thing uh, might be? Yeah. So, again, apprenticeships came up over and over again as one of the three keys to mastery. Pretty much everybody I interviewed said they had some form of apprenticeship. Uh, And in the book I talk about, there's basically two types of apprenticeship. There's the direct apprenticeship, which is what we think of when we typically hear that word. So I have a personal relationship with and direct feedback from somebody who's already mastered that craft, right? Uh, And then there are indirect apprenticeships, right, which I think are more common today. This is teaching yourself how to do something on YouTube, right, or reading Mm -hmm. a book about a great entrepreneur that you want to strive to be like. So both are really valuable, indirect and direct apprenticeships, but by far the most valuable are direct uh, apprenticeships. All throughout the book, uh, I saw this time and time again, the world's most masterful people that we talked to tended to have somebody mentoring them and really pouring into them, getting to know their specific strengths and weaknesses and coaching them along the path to mastery. I so appreciate it, as I mentioned a moment ago, that you interviewed dozens of world-class professionals, and it helped us to see that we may have more in common with them Uh, that they started out, as many of us do, at the beginning. Uh, Was there a single profile in Master of One that was particularly uh, interesting to you or influenced you as you think about your own mastery of one thing? I loved studying the life of Mr. Rogers. So Mm -hmm. I I did not grow up watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which is weird. I was born in 1986. It's like everybody my age grew up watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Uh, But when the documentary about his life came out a couple years ago, I I, I fell in love with it. I immediately read the first full-length biography on Rogers by this guy named Maxwell King, uh, who we actually just had on my podcast. And I just fell in love with Rogers. He he just quickly became a quick hero for me uh, for a couple reasons. Number one, he seemed to be uh, one of the most consistently Christ-like people I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that shows up in the biography, it shows up in the film. But the second reason is he was such a good picture of the path to mastery that I talk about in the book. You know, Fred Rogers, when he was young, he had a ton of different interests. He was interested in music composition. He was interested in early childhood development. He was interested in television, but he was always looking for the single thing, the single direction where he could apply all those varied interests in a very focused way. He wholeheartedly believed that in order to do his most exceptional work in service of his neighbors and glory of his God, he had to be ruthlessly focused. That's, that's a theme that kept coming up in his life in the biography. So he was incredibly inspirational. And I, I, I talk pretty deeply uh, about his life in the book. Mm-hmm. Now, we're just about out of time, but I want to ask you how our listeners can connect with you and how they can find out more about your book, Master of One. Sure. Really easy to find me, really easy to find our podcast called Mastery in the Book. Everything is at jordanrainer.com. That's J-O-R-D-A-N-R-A-Y-N-O-R.com. Well, this seems like a great book to gift to someone who is at the beginning of what they hope will be a flourishing career, as well as those who have been uh, working for a period of time and want to perhaps refine 
uh, their focus. Great book. I really enjoyed it and uh, enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for having me, Georgian. Thank you so much. Once again, the book is titled Master of One, Find and Focus on the Work You Were Created to Do. Jordan Rayner. The book is published by Waterbrook. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour, and we'll continue. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is our producer, Clark Hilton, engineering today's program. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Ricky Kim. Now, you may not know the name, but he is a, an American-born Korean actor and producer of Heaven Quest, which is, a, is rolling out on DVD, Video On Demand, which is also VOD, and uh, digital platforms today. Heaven Quest is um, a prequel to A Pilgrim's Progress. I had an opportunity to watch segments of it and was actually quite impressed. Uh, that is now going to be available. You can check that out. Heaven Quest is the uh, title, A Pilgrim's Progress. We'll talk with Ricky Kim about that. Uh, later this hour. Well, of course, today the president will be presenting his State of the Union address. Uh, This is the day after um, closing arguments by both the House managers and his defense team and senators uh, now chiming in using their own voice to respond to what they have uh, witnessed during this uh, trial uh, of the president. And on Wednesday, uh, there will be a vote. I believe it's four o'clock Eastern time. There'll be a vote in the Senate as to whether or not the president should be removed from office or acquitted. So it's in that context that the president will deliver his State of the Union address in less than an hour. Uh, we've been told that this is going to be a lengthy address. They seem to get longer and longer every year, regardless of the administration. But it's going to be um, very low key. And those are the words the president apparently used of the speech. Now, Trump and low key, those two things don't often go together. We'll see whether or not that's the case. Also, there's been a lot of speculation as to whether or not he's going to mention impeachment during his State of the Union Uh, At least his prepared remarks do not include reference to it. It's uh, going to be a positive, upbeat uh, speech, we're told, that will uh, focus on accomplishments of his first three years in office. So that's coming up at six o'clock East or excuse me, Pacific time when the president will deliver his third State of the Union address. Um, As mentioned on Wednesday, the conclusion, presumably, of the impeachment trial of President John uh, uh, Donald Trump. Uh, will conclude and uh, that chapter will end, although, as I mentioned yesterday, there are a number of spinoffs that will continue for quite some time, I'm certain. Well, uh, House Democrats, impeachment managers and the Trump's um, defense made their closing arguments yesterday in the Senate, two days before the 100 lawmakers are scheduled to vote on whether to remove the president from office. It included a proposal from one Senate Democrat to censure the president rather than remove him, saying this would be a uniting factor. And the lead House prosecutor's dire warning that Trump could give Alaska to the Russians and place his son-in-law in charge of the country was also part of what was said. After the House prosecutors and defense lawyers wrapped up, senators spoke from the floor, each given 10 minutes. They're expected to continue doing so um, on Wednesday after a break on Tuesday in the run-up to the president's uh, third State of the Union address. But here are some of the uh, highlights from yesterday, uh, the last day in which at least uh, managers and defense uh, members uh, spoke. Uh, Senator Joe Manchin, he's a Democrat from West Virginia. He's a centrist Democrat. He said he's undecided but urged his fellow senators to support a bipartisan resolution censuring the president for his actions toward Ukrainian President Zelensky. Now, whether or not that will gain traction and how that would be presented, I'm not sure. But that is one 
alternative uh, to um, either acquitting the president or removing him from office. One of the president's lawyers, Ken Starr, invoked Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King Jr. in making his argument for justice on behalf of Trump's acquittal. Dr. King spoke not only about freedom, freedom standing alone. He spoke frequently about freedom and justice, Starr told senators. He went on to criticize the impeachment process followed uh, in the House. Uh, Did the House Judiciary Committee rush to judgment in fashioning the articles of impeachment, he asked? Did it carefully gather the facts and assess the fact before it concluded we need nothing more than a panel of very distinguished professors and a splendid presentation by both the majority counsel and minority counsel? He then spoke as if he were the House Democratic majority. We asked some questions. The Republicans asked some questions. We heard their answers. We've heard uh, we're ready to vote, he said, framing the Democrats' actions. We are ready to try this case in the high court of impeachment. Another um, highlight in the uh, impeachment closing arguments on Monday, Representative Adam Schiff, who has led the House managers in their prosecution, scoffed at the defense argument that a crime is required for impeachment. And of course, that's been a back and forth throughout this process. What constitutes high crimes and misdemeanors? And does this rise to the level of either? Well, during the impeachment process, uh, Adam Schiff became known for what he defended as a parody in mischaracterizing the phone call between the president uh, Zelensky and Trump seeking uh, Russian dirt on his 2012 opponent, Mitt Romney, now a Utah senator. Well, during the closing argument, he presented another couple of far-fetched scenarios that could occur if Trump isn't removed from office. If abuse of power is not impeachable, he said, even though it's clear the founders considered it to the high of highest of all high crimes and misdemeanors. But if it were not impeachable, then a whole range of utterly unacceptable conduct in a president would now be beyond our reach. Trump could offer Alaska to the Russians, he said, in exchange for support for the next election or decide to move to Mar-a-Lago permanently and let son-in-law Jared Kushner run the country, delegating to him the decision about whether to go to war. Okay, it was absurd, but I'm quoting. Because those things are not necessarily criminal, this argument would allow that he could not be impeached for such abuses of power. Of course, this would be absurd, as was the example. More than absurd, it would be dangerous. Another highlight, Representative Val Demings, a Democrat out of Florida, a former Orlando police chief, said Trump was clearly guilty of extortion. The House's two articles of impeachment against the president do not allege a crime or any specific violation of law, which extortion would be. But House Democrats uh, voted on the 18th of December without a single Republican vote to impeach the president for abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. According to a White House transcript of the Trump-Zelensky call released by the president, the two leaders briefly talked about his interest in Ukraine's investigating the former vice president's son and the position he held. Another highlight, um, let's see, that is worth mentioning. Representative Jason Crow, one of seven House uh, impeachment managers, talked about the effort uh, by then-Senator Barry Goldwater to persuade Nixon to resign over the Watergate scandal. Um, uh, saying that Nixon, who was more liberal than Goldwater, resigned in that August, months after the Arizona Republican pressed him to do so. Contrary to popular belief, the Republican Party did not abandon Nixon as the Watergate scandal came to light. It took years of disclosures and crisis and court battles, Crow said. Um, uh, the party uh, stood with Nixon through Watergate because he was a popular conservative president. So they were, uh, too. Much more. We won't get into it, but... Uh, in the run-up to tomorrow's vote and tonight's State of the Union. 16 minutes after 5, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
Later in the program, in fact, I'll let you in on a little secret. It's the next segment. We'll talk with Ricky Kim, Korean actor and producer of Heaven Quest, uh, which is rolling out on DVD, video on demand, and digital platforms today. It's actually worth seeing. It's a prequel to Pilgrim's Progress, which has been in print since it was published in the 17th century. Well, Maine Republican Senator Susan Collins, a key swing vote in President Trump's impeachment trial, announced today that she would vote to acquit on both articles of impeachment, noting that Democrats' abuse of power charge did not even attempt to allege that the president had committed a crime and instead constituted a difficult-to-define non-criminal act, end quote. Well, even as she criticized the president's behavior as flawed, she slammed House Democrats for delaying transmitting the articles of impeachment to the Senate for more than a month, saying the stalling and posturing undercut their arguments that the president was an imminent threat. Well, last week, she had broken ranks with her fellow Republicans, along with Utah GOP Senator Mitt Romney, to vote in favor of additional witnesses in the Senate trial. Uh, The president, who is now set to uh, be overwhelmingly acquitted by the Senate on Wednesday, I mean, that's the presumption, will deliver the annual State of the Union address in, well, about a half an hour, a little more than uh, a half an hour. Well, in the trial of President Clinton, I argued that in order to convict, we must conclude from the evidence presented to us that no room for doubt that our Constitution will be required and our democracy suffer should the president remain in office one moment more, she said. Impeachment for a president should be reserved for conduct that poses such a serious threat to our governmental institutions so as to warrant the extreme step of immediate removal from office. I voted to acquit President Clinton, even though the House managers proved to my satisfaction that he did commit a crime. She continued saying that uh, his perjury did not rise to the threshold required for removal from office. This time around, as before, the House did little to support its assertion in Article 1, that the president will remain a threat to national security and the Constitution if allowed to remain in office. She argued that although a crime is not technically required to impeach and remove a president, Democrats had uh, not come close to arguing that Trump's conduct was problematic enough to warrant his ouster by the Senate in any event. At the same time, Collins remarked that it was clear that Trump sought an improper investigation into Joe and Hunter Biden, but that there is conflicting evidence in the record concerning Trump's motivation. Democrats, she said, plausibly argued that Trump was primarily motivated by finding dirt on a potential 2020 opponent. And Republicans plausibly argued that Trump was motivated in part by his longstanding concerns over foreign corruption and wasteful foreign aid. Nevertheless, it was wrong for President Trump to mention former Vice President Biden on his July 25th phone call with Ukraine leader, um, Ukraine's leaders. And it was wrong for him to suggest Ukraine take a look at Biden's potential corruption. Collins went on well, concerning the obstruction of Congress uh, charge against Trump. Collins slammed House Democrats for failing to even subpoena former National Security Advisor John Bolton, who they now argue is a key witness. Senator Lisa Murkowski, um, John Barrasso and others reacted to the final statement uh, being made. Uh, Collins remarks came a day after West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, a moderate in a pro-Trump state, strongly urged the Senate to consider censuring rather than voting to convict and remove the president. Never before in the history of our republic, he said, has there been a purely partisan impeachment vote of a president? Manchin said removing this president at this time would not only further divide our deeply divided nation, but also further poison our already toxic political atmosphere. But he also strongly condemned the president, saying the president asked of a foreign government to intervene in our upcoming election. Manchin said he defied lawful subpoenas from the House of Representatives 
And uh, that should result in censure. Alaska Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski, another closely watched swing vote, announced on the Senate floor on Monday night that she cannot vote to convict Trump. Well, Murkowski, whose comments closed out a day of debate on the floor over the articles of impeachment, said the Constitution provides for impeachment but does not demand it in all instances. While most Republican senators are expected to vote to acquit Trump, Murkowski had been considered a possible vote against the president. In her floor speech, and this is the season in which senators are delivering their 10-minute floor speeches, she said Trump's behavior was shameful and wrong with Ukraine, but argued against removing him from office, calling the voters to make a judgment in November's election. The response to the president's behavior is not a disenfranchisement of nearly 63 million Americans and remove him from the ballot, she said. The House could have pursued censure and not immediately jumped to the remedy of last resort. Well, the Alaska senator added the votes, uh, rather voters, will pronounce a verdict in nine months, and we must trust their judgment. Meanwhile, Representative Rand Paul, he appeared on the Senate floor today to read aloud the question he tried but failed to ask during the president's impeachment trial last week when it was blocked by Chief Justice John Roberts. The question made reference to two individuals, including one person who's been reported to be the whistleblower who filed a complaint about the president's phone call. Uh, it's um, the identity of the whistleblower has not been confirmed. Uh, now, um, the libertarian leaning senator said, and I quote, now, during the proceedings, I asked a question that was disallowed. And I'm going to ask that question again this morning because the Constitution does protect debate and does protect the asking of questions. I think they made a big mistake not allowing my question. My question did not talk about anybody who is a whistleblower. My question did not accuse anybody of being a whistleblower. Well, he claimed he simply named two people. Uh, They proceeded uh, to repeat his question, reading the names of the two individuals. Paul said, And you say, well, we should protect the whistleblower and the whistleblower deserves anonymity. The law does not preserve anonymity. His boss is not supposed to say anything about him. He's not supposed to be fired. I'm for that. Paul said that his reason for naming names was out of concern over a possible plot to take down a president. My point is, is by having such protection, such overzealous protection, we don't get to the root of the matter of how this started. Because this could happen again. Well, the comments came as senators on both sides of the aisle spent the day making arguments for and against removing President Trump from office. Meanwhile, officials in the Church of England have apologized for releasing a statement that explained why sexual activity is only proper within marriage between one man and one woman, stressing that its teachings had jeopardized trust and sowed division and hurt, particularly among homosexuals. So stating what the scriptures teach... Um, was apologized for by the Church of England. We as archbishops, and I'm quoting, alongside the bishops of the Church of England, apologize and take responsibility for releasing a statement last week, which we acknowledge has jeopardized trust. We are very sorry and recognize the division and hurt this has caused. This was Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and John Sintamu, the Archbishop of York, uh, late last month. Uh, At our meeting of the College of Bishops of the Church of England this week, we continued our commitment to the Living in Love and Faith Project, which is about questions of human identity, sexuality, and marriage, the Archbishop said. This process is intended to help us all build bridges that will enable the difficult conversations that are necessary as together we discern the way forward for the Church of England. So apparently the way forward for the Church is more significant 
than making reference to scriptural teaching. Well, earlier in the month of January, the Church of England had issued a pastoral statement entitled Civil Partnerships for Same-Sex and Opposite-Sex Couples. The statement explained the church's position on civil partnerships, which were recently expanded to include homosexual couples, and why sexual activity among people in civil partnerships, heterosexual and homosexual, is morally wrong. In the statement the church teaches, it has always been the position of the Church of England that marriage is a creation ordinance, a gift of God in creation, and a means of His grace. Marriage defined as a faithful, committed, permanent, and legal sanctioned relationship between a man and a woman making a public commitment to each other is central to the stability and health of human society. They have since apologized for that. The pastoral statement went on. In the light of this understanding of the Church of England teaches the sexual relations as an expression of faithful intimacy properly belongs within marriage exclusively. They apologized for that statement. The statement went on, sexual relationships outside of heterosexual marriage are regarded as falling short of God's purpose for human beings. They apologized for God's standard, for what the scripture teaches. And that's a sad day, it seems to me, for the church, ashamed of the gospel, not acknowledging that it is the power of God for salvation. God help us in the church. Up next, we're going to talk with Ricky Kim. He's a Korean actor, an American Korean actor, and uh, one of the producers of Heaven Quest. It is a Pilgrim's Progress prequel. It's rolling out on DVD and video on demand and digital platforms today. We'll tell you more about that in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, I am thrilled to announce, and we actually did an interview on this some months ago, but uh, a movie created as an epic reimagined prequel to the beloved novel The Pilgrim's Progress, the standout independent film Heaven Quest, A Pilgrim's Progress, is releasing today on most digital DVD and VOD formats. This is a project, according to the director, that was uh, has exceeded their expectations. This is always risky, involving uh, um, inspired uh, classics, a source of material to life on film. I've always loved the story of Pilgrim's Progress, he says, and was inspired to take a fresh look at the characters and the setting. It is extremely well done, and I'm so delighted that we have joining us one of the actors from that film. Ricky Kim is an award-winning actor, entertainer, and producer from South Korea. Since starting his career there in 2006 as an actor, Ricky has been involved in acting and the production of dramas and TV shows on almost every major network in South Korea. His international fame is also directly connected to his social media influence over the past few years, uh, where he has over 200,000 followers on Instagram alone and close to a half million followers across all social media platforms, not just in South Korea, but also in uh, China, uh, the rest of Asia, South Asia, and all over the world. So delighted to have him with us today to talk about the release of this great and surprising film. Ricky Kim, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me in. Um, it's just a pleasure to be here to, to talk about this film and just uh, to get to know the audience out there. Well, let me ask you um, how you connected with uh, Heaven Quest. I'm always interested in how an actor and a project somehow come together. Well, I mean, I was looking for an opportunity to do some more global global um, projects, and my wife and I were just looking at what was on our desk, and um, there was the opportunity to look at this film, and uh, the script came across the desk, uh, flew over to L.A., met up with some of the producers, and said, you know, I think we're, we're going to take a chance here and uh, try to join this uh, this journey, and uh, I just, just picked it up and just started going in, and 
had the pleasure of uh, being an executive producer and um, helping out here and there with, with making this film and getting it to where it is right now. You play Prince Elikai in the film. Were you familiar with the Pilgrim's Progress story before uh, picking up Heaven Quest? Yeah, Pilgrim's Progress. I mean, being a Korean-American Korean and gr- living in Korea, being an entertainer and, and being in the Christian and in, in, in the faith circles, I mean, Pilgrim's Progress is like one of those just those go-to books yeah. for a lot of missionaries and a lot of Christian uh, leaders in, in Korea and all over the world. And so, yeah, I've been familiar with the stories. I've been familiar with the book and the writer and the, his, the rich history of what that, that book has done for many people. And uh, when, when we came across it, it was in a, the opportunity to, to see how, we, how, they, how these producers and writers and directors could, directors could play with this in the, uh, in the movie stand. I thought, I thought it'd be a great, a great opportunity. Yeah, I'm so excited that the story is being reintroduced to a new generation 430 years after it was written. Um, what did you uh, tell us a little bit about the part you play? I mentioned your uh, Prince Elikai. Tell us a bit about your character. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to make it a, a spoiler for the people <laughs> that haven't watched the movie yet. But um, I'll just say that it's a very, very important, important character. Um, that that to be said, I mean, this movie is based in in a world setting that is not 2020. You know, the, the mm-hmm. America that we're the, the world we're looking at now. It's based in in, in in an actual world that like the the vision and the ideas that John Bunyan had in Pilgrim's Progress, and then our director Matt Dillon and our creative team like built a world. And this world is divided into two, two, two specific areas, the north and the south. And uh, Prince Elkai is, is the son of the king of the north. And uh, I, if I go into too much detail, I, I think it would be a spoiler yeah. for everybody. But, we'll uh, leave it at that. <laughs> he's, a friend, he's a friend of many, and uh, he, he's kind of in the, he's a connector uh, of, and a center of a lot of what's going on in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Is this your first faith-based project? This is my first, um, what, I, what I've said, kind of, it's kind of my first, I guess, traditional, classical, faith-based, faith-based project. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, I, I wear my emotions, I wear my, you know, my faith on, on my shoulders, on my sleeves. I bring it in every project I'm in. Uh, I, don't, I don't try to, like, make it as, like, this is a Christian project, this is a non-Christian project. But, but to answer the question, I guess, more in depth, this is a, the first, I guess, on-board, on-ship, faith-based mm-hmm. Christian project that I've been a part of. And uh, it was just wonderful to be around people that are, that are, um, I, I wouldn't even say like-minded, because sometimes in the, in the creative realm, sometimes we're not like-minded, but we still are going in the same direction to yeah. really try to inspire a generation and to share a story uh, of what's coming from Pilgrim's Progress, also from Heaven Quest, and to, to share the story of a journey of, of our main character. Well, I know the film has a very interesting international cast. How was that working with folks from various uh, parts of the world? You know, um, to, before you got onto the, like with the producers and the, the starting cast we had, I mean, before you wanted to join on as a cast or crew, like you had to understand this impossible feat that we're going against with, you know, the finances and the industry standards and like the way that classical Christian films, the classical, uh, I guess even fantasy films are made. And so it was kind of chaotic just to think about it at first. And so having a multicultural and like an ethnic, you know, just cast that's all over the world you would think that this would be outrageously uh, chaos, but the egos were checked at the door. Everybody was was super just ready to, to just get down and gritty and just like, you know, we're going to help wherever we can. Some people, a lot of people were wearing multiple hats and mm-hmm. helping out. I mean, some, some of the crew, like as even some of the cast were doing things just to support the crew uh, behind the scenes, which you'll never see. 
But we know that um, in our crew and our cast together, we really created a family environment. Yeah. And I know that you um, helped to write some of your own lines. You filmed, uh, did some of the filming in remote locations. You helped with some of the production and crew jobs on Heaven Quest. So this really was a collaborative effort. Do you think Pilgrim's Progress, the story, again, that was written some 430 years ago, is still relevant to uh, generations today? I I do. Um, I look at this, this book. Um, which is a big book with a bunch of rich characters and stories. And I look at the, the way that we're making a prequel to this kind of a world and building this world and having this journey of Vangel, our main character. And you look at a guy that is going through life thinking he knows what's going on and he's living kind of comfortably. And then everything, his world is rocked. And then he's kind of lost and kind of seeking kind of an answer. And then he gets on of a journey where he's starting to become passionate about something. But then there's a lot of doubt and a lot of this, miscommunication and misdirection in there, kind of the, the Hollywood, the kind of movie way of where the climaxes are coming in. But you think about that and you, you kind of put it to yourself. If you're 14 years old, if you're 40 or even if you're 80, if you're male or female or whatever ethnic background you're from or culture, and all of this can kind of, kind of you know, be connected to that. Sometimes we're lost. Sometimes we're seeking something. Sometimes we want to be more inspired and passionate about something. So I look at these characters in there and you can really kind of draw from the characters, draw from the metaphors that are in there. And what I've said many times is after you watch the movie, which I think you should watch multiple times, mm-hmm. um, you can kind of just have a great conversation afterwards. But I think there's a part, there's a part of the movie or the characters that kind of speaks into each person. And uh, that's kind of the beauty of what it does. Yeah, I would agree. And I have to admit, I was pleasantly surprised at how well done Heaven Quest is. You know, my expectations were, well, pretty low. <laughs> But I, I was really very uh, pleasantly surprised. Again, we're talking about the film Heaven Quest. It's rolling out on DVD, VOD, and digital platforms today. Uh, it's a small, independent film. Uh, let me just tell you what uh, Crosswalk had to say about it. Ten minutes into the film, I was hooked. Heaven Quest is an inspiring tale. Dove.org says a beautiful fantasy parallel to John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Heaven Quest is a, has a strong Christian biblical worldview. The powerful allegory makes the movie worth viewing movie guide. And there are many, many other uh, comments. I really recommend it to our, our our listeners. And as I pointed out, when I saw it, I was very pleasantly surprised at how well it is done. You did a great job in the role that uh, that you play. Let me just ask you before we end our conversation, tell us a little bit about Inspire Again. Well, Inspire Again, um, if you break it down, I mean, the word inspire is just like a word that I think a lot of people are looking for. They want to be inspired and they want to be passionate and directed to something. And again, it's just a simple thing that we have to remind ourselves and kind of go through the process. You you, you wake up, you do things, you go to sleep, you get up, and you, you repeat, you do it again. And uh, inspire again is, um, if you look at the word inspire, like it's in the spirit, and I'm, I'm a man of faith, and to be in the spirit and to be led by something bigger than who I am, and then just doing it again and again. We, we try to make media and platforms where we can reach the unreached or the ones that are kind of lost, that are just, especially when you're online or in YouTube or any, any kind of social media, you kind of can get lost into going down the wrong path. And so we, we're trying to just make... Uh, an opportunity and an avenue where where there's there's an option and uh, inspire again kind of this conferencing and events and in media it kind of sets that up for the next generation to kind of get connected and share their story through media. Oh, excellent. Well, I sure appreciate your taking the time to talk with us about uh, this great movie that's now out on VOD and DVD and uh, uh, online platforms. Really appreciate your taking the time. 
Well, thanks a lot, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to share the story about Heaven Quest. You're so welcome. Again, Ricky Kim, an award-winning actor, entertainer, and producer from South Korea. We're talking about the movie Heaven Quest. It's set in a reimagined fantasy universe. It's inspired by the worlds and characters in John Bunyan's uh, timeless masterpiece, The Pilgrim's Progress. It's considered one of the first novels ever written in English, and the novel was written back in 1678 while Bunyan was in prison for holding religious services. Well, since it was released back then, The Pilgrim's Progress has never been out of print. It has been translated into more than 200 languages and is considered the second most read book after the Bible. If you'd like to uh, introduce this prequel to your uh, younger generations, or for yourself for that matter, uh, you can check that out. Again, Heaven Quest is now available, VOD, DVD, and um, online platforms. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, our final segment. Well, you may not have noticed, but Monday was the start of the short session of the Oregon legislature. That first day was expected to be rather contentious, but it wasn't quite as contentious as expected ahead of votes on controversial bills that are going to come up. Well, one contentious proposal to reduce the state's greenhouse gas emissions dominated political chatter in the weeks leading up to this 2020 legislative session. So much so that observers expected sparks when lawmakers convened yesterday according to Brian Boquist, a Republican out of Dallas. Well, sitting in his office on the appointed day, wearing cowboy boots, jeans, and his signature turtleneck under the sports jacket, he said, it seems like it's in neutral. This uh, building is never neutral. Well, then the longtime senator reconsidered. Instead, he said, it's more like the legislature was out of gear or like standing on a calm beach as the water recedes before the tsunami. And that could, <laughs> in fact, be the case. Well, the pace is expected to pick up rather quickly as lawmakers race to meet deadlines to finish within 35 days. You'll recall we have a system now in the state of Oregon where you have the long legislative session. It's uh, has an end to it, but this second session, uh, the every other year session, is only 35 days long. It doesn't happen fast. It doesn't happen at all in that session. That's what uh, Jenny Burdick, who's the Senate Majority Leader, Democrat out of Portland, told reporters on Monday. And that's the reality of a 35-day session. So I think you're going to see a lot of pressure at the very beginning. Republicans have complained that Democrats who hold large majorities in both chambers would push through hefty proposals without giving the public enough time to weigh in. And this may be no exception. Senate Minority Leader Senator Herman um, Barchheiser, a, a junior Republican out of Grants Pass opposes this robust legislation in such a compressed time frame and said in an interview that Democrats have a large appetite. Well, we will see what happens as the legislature is now in full session. The clock is ticking 35 days and that started yesterday. We'll see what happens. You might recall last year in the lengthier legislative session, Republicans walked out on this proposal, and uh, the speculation is what will happen this time around? Uh, will the Republicans simply refuse to engage, given the fact that there's such a short period of time uh, to take this up without the public having sufficient opportunity to weigh in? Or will this be one of those sessions uh, in which they uh, duke it out in the, uh, uh, in the House and in the Senate? We'll continue to keep an eye on that. But again, for 35 days Starting yesterday, the Oregon legislature is in full swing, and the, the major contentious issue is cap-and-trade uh, in the state of Oregon that erupted 
last year in the legislative session, and we'll just wait and see what happens this time around. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with um, retired Judge Tom Cole. He's the uh, founder of the organization Paid in Full, and I'm telling you, the organization is going full throttle. He's also the author of a book uh, that is titled after his daughter, who was murdered here in the metro area. Uh, this really started the uh, the ball rolling in this ministry in which he has focused his attention on ministering to those in prison. That includes uh, those who uh, are charged and found guilty of murder. He's actually met with the, the young man who was responsible for his daughter's death. We'll review that story when he joins me tomorrow in studio, but there's so much going on uh, with Paid in Full. It's uh, garnered the attention of uh, all kinds of um, media outlets, and uh, there may be a movie in the offing as well. So we'll get into all of that and let you know what's happening in the Oregon State Penitentiary uh, and whether or not a a, um, Christian education, a, a seminary education is moving forward this year as expected. On Thursday, we'll talk with Catherine James, author of A Prayer for Orion, a son's addiction and a mother's love. It is a heart-gripping story about a mother and uh, watching the destruction, the self-destruction of a young man she raised and loves so dearly. We'll talk with her about uh, about that, A Prayer for Orion. The book is published by InterVarsity. And then on Friday, we will um, take a look at the lighter side of the news. Looking forward to taking advantage of the opportunity for just that. Now, coming up, uh, you may recall that the president is going to be delivering his State of the Union address. It's a rather peculiar time to do just that. Yesterday, uh, the senators uh, began um, giving comment and continued throughout the day today. uh, This is the first time we've heard from senators following the closing arguments from House managers and the president's defense team. Uh, giving some indication how they are likely to vote on the up or down vote that's going to be held tomorrow regarding the president's impeachment trial and whether or not senators will see that he is removed from office or acquitted. And that's the uh, appropriate word to describe what happens if uh, he is not removed from office. So this isn't the first time a sitting president has delivered the State of the Union address Um, It was the case with Bill Clinton. He delivered the State of the Union address in the middle of his impeachment trial. He was not removed from office. And for that matter, no sitting president who has ever been impeached has been removed from office. So if uh, President Trump were to be removed from office, this would be an exception rather than the rule. In any event, uh, that is expected to take place four o'clock Eastern time tomorrow. That vote that will determine the president's Future. Now, keep in mind that it's possible if the president were removed from office by the senators uh, that his name could not uh, appear on um, the 2020 ballot. Now, that's that's a possibility uh, if he is removed from office and denied the opportunity to pursue federal office in the future. That would certainly impact the 2020 election. It is believed widely that the president will be acquitted. Susan Collins, I mentioned earlier in the program, gave a rather persuasive and compelling uh, set of reasons why she is voting to acquit the president, despite the fact that she uh, thought some of what the president did was wrong, but did not rise to the level of impeachment. And when uh, pressed, um, pressing the House managers to address her concerns where you have conflicting arguments and evidence, she was not sufficiently convinced um, that this had, that his conduct had risen to the level of impeachment. It's also been suggested by another member uh, in the Senate that the president should be should be censured rather than impeached. 
Whether or not that is going to be taken up remains to be seen, but that's a possibility, at least a consideration that we might see tomorrow. But in the meantime, we're told by the president his speech is going to be very long, but very low key. Um, Very long is easy to believe. Low key, it's hard to imagine this president maintaining a very long speech in which it's low key. A lot of the speculation has also been whether or not the president is going to address the impeachment. Now, what we are hearing is that he does not intend to. It's not in his prepared remarks. However, the president has also been known to go off script. It's supposed to be a very positive speech by all accounts in which he will emphasize his accomplishments and uh, how the United States is performing uh, and how the United States is great. So that's what we are told to expect. We'll see what actually happens in this very long, low-key address by the president of the United States. So that's coming up tonight at 6, just a few minutes from now. Once again, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with retired judge Tom Cole. Paid in full is the ministry, and boy, are they making a making an impact. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.